a prayer this evening. God, would you take everything that's not of you? Take all wickedness, all ungodliness, all that's unholy. Take away my selfish ambition. Take away my pride. Take away my envy, my covetousness. Take away my jealousy. Take away my anger, my wrath. Take everything away that's not of you. Make me more in your image tonight, Lord. Help me, God, that I would reflect you, your character, your his way only open to his instruction open to his correction open to his reproof because I want to be like him I want to be like him because most days when I look in the mirror I don't like the guy looking back at me he doesn't reflect Jesus as much as I want him to so I want to be open to allowing God to continue to work in my heart and my mind that's why we're here tonight. That's why we've gathered together after a long day of heat for many of you to come to the house of the Lord, to give him some praise, and then to feed from his word and to get some strength. God bless you. You can be seated. Tonight we will continue in our series, A Glorious Church. We began this last week. So tonight is uh, lesson 3.2. There are some handouts in the back if uh, the ushers can pass those around just so you'll have something to use to follow along. Our text tonight, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app, is Acts chapter 4. We will have it on the screen if you want to follow along that way. You can do so. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. The truth that we are discussing tonight about God is that God established his church to come together and to reveal him to the world. That is ultimately the purpose of the church, to reveal Jesus Christ. And as we spoke last week, to continue to do and to teach the things that he did and he taught. Again, he told his disciples, greater works than these that I have done will you do. And so his works were not to end, but rather to continue. And so for me as an individual, for you as an individual, the truth for my life is I will testify to others about the things I hear and see God do. 
And that's really all that witnessing to others is, is sharing with others what you've seen God do, what you've heard testimonies of others that God has done, and hopefully in a way that it relates to something they're dealing with. Because if God did it for someone else that you know, or another testimony that you heard and you share that with them, well, that gives them faith to believe that that same God would do it for them. And that is a perfect introduction to get them in a relationship with God. Our text begins at verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. It is a rather lengthy portion, but I want to read it. For many of you, it will be familiar. For some of you, it may not be as familiar. And so I want to read it to give you a backdrop for our lesson tonight. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. So it wasn't their intelligence or their education that caused them to marvel. In fact, it was uh, they perceived them to be unlearned and ignorant, but their boldness caused these uh, people to marvel, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I believe that boldness was familiar to some of them that were hearing Peter and John at the moment. They're like, that sounds a little bit familiar. They remind me of that Jesus guy we killed not too long ago. Verse 14, and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Uh, just a quick backdrop leading up to these verses. This is the story where uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. And as they entered, there was the lame man laying at the gate, and he asked for alms. And Peter uh, said, look on us, and uh, I don't have any gold or silver to throw into your cup, but what I do have, I'll give it to you. And that's the power that's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the man was healed. And so the man is standing by them. Verse 15, and when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, so they commanded Peter, John, and the man that had been healed to go outside, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them as manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We can't deny what happened. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. In other words, these are religious rulers of the Jewish people that are commanding Peter and John to quit speaking in the name of Jesus. And he said, Tell me, tell me then, is it right for me to listen to you instead of God? You're saying you're more important than Yahweh, Jehovah, our Elohim, really? To which they really couldn't say anything. And he continued on, verse 20, and this is our uh, focus verse for tonight. This is the focus verse of what we're talking about. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak. We're not going to make stuff up, but the things we've seen and heard, that's what we're going to talk about. Because that's what God has told us to talk about. That's what our Lord instructed us to do when he left us. So that's what we're going to do. 
Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. The man that had been healed was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. It's a little after-action review going on when they get back to the rest of the believers. Verse 24, and when they heard that, when the rest of the company heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Notice that. It's not they did what they wanted to do. They did what you had determined would be done. So while the Jewish leaders had thought that they were in control, the apostles realized all of this was prophesied. They couldn't help but to do it. They had to carry it out so that the word of God could come to pass. <clears throat> Verse number 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> now, they had been filled with the Holy Ghost prior. They got renewed. So it's okay for us sometimes to need a good renewing in the Holy Ghost. It's all right to say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Ghost again. Fill me up. Fill me up. <clears throat> and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of, these things, all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. This is giving us a little more description about how the early church was living as believers. Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. According as he had need. <clears throat> Why don't we just pause for a second and let's ask the Lord to speak to us through the remainder of the lesson tonight now that we've read the text. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together around your word, to feed from your word, to learn from your word, to be challenged and changed by the word of God. That is our prayer tonight, that you would encourage, empower, and equip us all to live lives that glorify you, that put a smile on your face, to go and to tell, to share the things that we have seen and heard with those around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, when we read 
of the apostles and the early church, we read about a lot of miracles that took place. All kinds of miracles. There were miracles of healings. There, was, there were miracles uh, that were supernatural where Jesus walked on water. Even Peter walked on water for a brief time. Uh, storms were calmed. Demons were cast out. The dead were raised. Lots of miracles took place in Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So if you could witness any miracle you desire, what miracle would you choose to witness? What would be the miracle that you would want to see in person the most? We've seen people here healed of cancer. But it wasn't a visible cancer that vanished in a moment's uh, twinkling of an eye where there was a big cancerous lump and then the next minute it's gone. I haven't seen that. But I know I've seen people get healed of cancer. We know we've had people who uh, were deaf healed. There have been people in other congregations, we've heard testimonies of those who were blind receiving sight, those who were paralyzed being able to walk again. So if you could choose any miracle to witness, what miracle would you choose? Because the early church saw miracles, signs, and wonders. And we know they continue today. But will they happen if we're not seeking them? Will they come to pass if we're not doing the things that Jesus was doing, which brought about the opportunities for the miracles to take place? He was out preaching and teaching the kingdom of God to everyone who would listen. And that created opportunities for miracles to take place. If we never pause to stop to the person who looks downtrodden and desperate and hopeless in the grocery store and have a conversation, how could we possibly find out that they had been diagnosed with cancer and were only given a few months to live? But that conversation would open a door for us to pray with them in the name of Jesus and for them to get a miracle. But that doesn't happen if we're not doing the sharing and the uh, witnessing of the things that we have seen and heard. After the miraculous day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, what's well, the entire chapter 2, but the passage where we read about the Holy Ghost being poured out was verses 1 through 4, that very first supernatural outpouring of God's Spirit on the disciples, the 120. After that day of Pentecost, the number of disciples, the number of believers ballooned from the 120 who were in the upper room to a whopping 3,120 in Acts chapter 2 after the sermon that Peter preached that day and after people had responded to what they heard, what he shared that he had seen and heard. That's rapid church growth to go from 120 to 3,120 in a day. I don't, I don't know where we'd put them all. You're talking about having to have multiple services. We might have to go, not two, two Sunday morning services, we might have to have services every two hours all day Sunday. Our worship team would be wiped out. <laughs> Our video team, they'd be passed out in the booth back there, sleeping. 
But these two chapters, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, the things that happen in those chapters set a precedent for how us faithfully practicing the ordinary things of a Christian life can lead to extraordinary moves of the Spirit. Because in Acts chapter 1, the 11 remaining disciples met together, well, the 120, the 11 uh, apostles that remained, and the rest who made up the 120 met together to pray. They also, during that time in Acts chapter 1, determined to fill Judas' vacant position as an apostle so that there would again be 12 apostles. They nominated two candidates and prayerfully cast lots, which would be like us flipping a coin nowadays. It's hard to believe that's how they decided the uh, person that would replace Judas. But because they prayed beforehand, God directed the outcome. Essentially, the newborn church had their first business meeting in Acts chapter 1 where they selected a new apostle for the first Pentecostal church of the New Testament or of Jerusalem uh, specifically. These seemingly ordinary events of praying, of taking care of the selection of the new 12th apostle, these ordinary events led to the supernatural outpouring of God's spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were prior to, they preceded it. And this same precedent can be seen at the end of Acts chapter 2. After the Spirit had been poured out, after the 3,000 had responded, Luke recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And we read about a tremendous revival that came as a result of these new Christians devoting themselves to ordinary Christian practices as a community. Just ordinary things. The apostles' doctrine, learning the doctrine, learning the things that Jesus had taught the apostles that they now are sharing, continuing in fellowship with one another, continuing in breaking of bread, eating meals together, uh, observing even the Lord's Supper together, and in continuing in prayer. Just ordinary things, but the outcome was far from ordinary. Luke reported miraculous wonders and signs and supernatural compassion for each other as a result that came from their consistency of commitment to these ordinary disciplines. Believers volunteered their money, their property, and their other resources to the community of faith and to those in need. And all of this happened as a result of faithfully practicing the ordinary disciplines of worship, the ordinary discipline of fellowship within the newborn New Testament church. Their faithfulness to the apostles' doctrine, their faithfulness to prayer, their faithfulness to fellowship, their faithfulness to the breaking of bread with one another is what attracted God's attention and God's blessing. And we read just a few verses later, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The result of the ordinary practice of prayer, <clears throat> fellowship, and worship, along with extraordinary miracles and ministries, was salvation regularly extended to those in Jerusalem. This <clears throat> was the humble but powerful beginnings of God's spirit-filled, spirit-led church. Huge 
influx of souls in Acts chapter 2, and then at the end of Acts chapter 2, daily addition. The Lord added daily such as should be saved. But that would not have happened if they were not practicing the ordinary disciplines. The miraculous healing of a lame beggar that we read about in tonight's text provides an example of how commonplace the ministry of the early church operated in Jerusalem. They did not need to invite the crippled beggar to their church. Excuse me. Peter and John took their church to the beggar. They didn't wait for the believers to gather together, but they went. And as they went, they shared what they had seen and heard. After this miracle, when they went into the temple, and after Peter's follow-up sermon, which happened when people began to ask questions, the number of Christians grew to roughly 5,000 members. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. When we take church to others, we can impact our community a whole lot faster than waiting for them to come to us. That's what God has called each of us as believers to do. We are to function in unity and in harmony and to go out and do the same thing, not to leave it to someone else, not to trust that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so who's so good at it, let them do it. But no, we're all to go out and to share the things that we have seen and heard God do. And as we look at the early church, if we will not just read through it, but if we'll pause and actually ponder and ask some questions as we're reading through, then we can gain some insights for how we can see the same types of revival, the same types of miracles, signs, and wonders, the same type of people being added to the church daily, such as should be said. We can see that by asking certain questions, such as what is the connection between church unity and church growth? Because they were unified. The Bible says they were of one mind. They were uh, of one heart. How can a church grow in unity and extend that unity to those outside the faith community, those who are non-believers? Because the world around us just wants to divide. It wants to point out all the differences and make us think that because there are differences in appearance or differences in speech, differences in accents, that, that we shouldn't love one another, we shouldn't uh, commune together, we shouldn't fellowship together. That's hogwash. That's not Christian. <clears throat> that is not how we as believers ought to act. Rather, when we can get unified and we can go out into our community, it doesn't matter their cultural background, doesn't matter their upbringing, it doesn't matter uh, what type of job they have or how much money they have, what type of house they live in, what type of what their native or their first primary language was or what color their skin was, is. When none of that matters, we can impact our community because there's no barriers. We're not letting walls get in the way. Peter and John's prayer for the lame beggar, as well as Peter's sermon, garnered the attention of the Sanhedrin, which we read about. That's that uh, ruling religious council of Jews. 
this council of elite Jews brought Peter and James in for judgment. They were pretty mad. Again, it tells us that the church grew to 5,000 at that point. That's a big jump again. And they're not too happy about that. Now, yes, uh, at this time, the Romans were the political rulers of the local region and beyond. And yet, the Roman government attempted to avoid settling religious disputes. When it came up to something that was religious, they let the uh, religious rulers handle that. And so this afforded the Sanhedrin a lot of power, even under the Roman government, to dish out punishment, to dish out judgment. The temple guard jailed Peter and John overnight and took them before the Sanhedrin the following morning. The public that had been there and had witnessed gathered together to support Peter and John during this trial. Again, we read about it. The council was worried to dish out any form of punishment other than some threatenings because of the people. The people had rallied around Peter and John. The man who was formerly lame was also standing there with them. Again, you can't deny what's happened. <clears throat> Consider the tension Peter and John might have felt as they stood before many of the same men who had sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. I mean, these people had the power to do it. And just as they had made up a story and put on a mock trial to crucify Jesus, they could do the same thing to Peter and John if they really wanted to. So just imagine what Peter and John might have been thinking while they're standing there and while they were sitting in jail overnight. And yet, when given the opportunity, Peter responded to the Sanhedrin council boldly, emphasizing how the power that had been manifested through the name of Jesus had caused this healing to occur. He said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, For neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Sanhedrin removed Peter and John from the chamber while they conferred with one another. Again, the council feared public punishment would heighten the religious fervor of these Christians and would cause a broader-scale rebellion in the city. And so the council, when they allowed Peter and John to return into the chamber, they commanded them to cease speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, as we read, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Like other Christians in their community, Peter and John were committed to sharing what they had seen and heard regarding Jesus Christ. And they had been eyewitnesses of the highest order. When you look at uh, the structure of Jesus' uh, ministry and, and how he led, he had called the 12, which we are very familiar with. But out of the 12, and, and after the 12, there was a 70, right, that he sent out two by two to go and to witness and to heal. And beyond the 70, there were the multitudes, the crowds that would gather, whether it was in a synagogue or on a hillside in the country or along a, a, the seashore of, on the Sea of Galilee, there was the crowds. But even out of the 12, there were the three that were closer. And so tiered leadership is a biblical concept. We here at the Pentecostals have tiered leadership for a reason. We're trying to implement and follow the pattern that Jesus had set. Jesus didn't require quite as much of the multitude that he required of the three who climbed the Mount of Transfiguration with him, who went in the Garden of Gethsemane with him, had those special moments. He required much more of them. But these men had been where many, even of the 12, had not been, and they were compelled to share what they had seen and heard. These 
two apostles after the Sanhedrin had threatened them returned to the other believers. As soon as they were released, they informed the, their community of believers what the Sanhedrin ruling had been and how they had uh, threatened them. And many of the other believers, which was, again, over 5,000 members strong at this point, came together in unity and prayer. And we read some of that as well. During their prayer that we read, they recited the first two verses of Psalm 2. This citation allows us to see how early believers saw themselves, the Jews and the world around them, as well as their place in God's plan. Psalm 2 is considered a royal psalm that discusses the opposition Israel faced from the nations, such as Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and so on. Since God set his chosen king in Jerusalem, Israel cannot be overcome by the nations. That's Psalm 2 and 6. The early Christians quoted this psalm because it displayed how the meaning had been transformed for them due to Jesus' ministry, due to the teachings that Jesus Christ himself had brought. So early Christians, these early believers, saw the Jews as the nations and Jesus as God's chosen messianic king who could not be overcome. And although the Sanhedrin opposed the Christians, the church itself, this body of believers, this community, had unshakable faith that God's Messiah would be victorious, and therefore they would be victorious. They began to see the Sanhedrin's opposition as futile. You can make all the threats you want because the king cannot be overcome. And the king, obviously, they saw as the Lord Jesus Christ. And due to this power that they felt through this uh, revelation of their role and who they were in the kingdom of God, they were prepared to even, in the face of the threatenings, practice their faith with boldness. In fact, that was their prayer, that they might speak with boldness. How do you, as a member of our local assembly, see our church? How do you see yourself in the church? How does your perspective of who you are as a believer in the world that you're living in affect the behavior of this church as a whole? Again, when we read through scriptures, it's good for us to pause and to ask some questions. That's what's going to help you progress. That's what's going to help you to continue to grow and to become more victorious and become more emboldened. Despite a traumatic arrest, incarceration, and judgment from the Sanhedrin, Peter and John rejoined the community and ignited it with further zeal for the work of the Lord. Early Christians did not practice an individualistic type of Christianity, which is often practiced in North America today. Rather than praying for God to strengthen them as individuals or to strengthen the other apostles to perform ministry, these first-generation Christians prayed for the Spirit to strengthen the community of believers. They understood their ability to testify and share the gospel was not based on individual merit or ability, but on the health of the community as a whole. The emphasis of the community over the individual is clear in how believers shared hearts and minds as well as money, property, and food. When their church service was dismissed, so to speak, these early believers did not return to their homes, care for their families, and plan for a big service next Sunday. Rather, they came together to mutually provide 
for themselves and for those who are in need in their community, in their body of believers. Such a community, as we read about in the early church, could not be organized solely through the efforts of men. Often societies have tried to organize a comparable movement to the church, and the outcome has been failed socialist states. This idea of shared property that we read about in the book of Acts has been tried to be forced by men, and it has failed time and time again. However, when God is leading and individuals abandon individualism to embrace community through their own choice, the outcome will be miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles. Just as we practice oneness in doctrine, we must also be one in our daily disciplines, one in our purpose, one in our faith, one in our hope, <clears throat> one in our voice that is being raised in our community to declare truth. The community of faith, rather than the individuality of faith, is a major part of what makes Christianity a powerfully transformative experience. If it was just about what God did in you, you'd be limited in how many people you could reach. But because there's a body of believers and there's testimonies of what God has done for others that he has not done for you, you can reach people who are facing similar situations because you know someone God did it for. It makes us ask the question, how can our church encourage a culture that values community despite the heavy cultural emphasis of individualism that is rampant in the world around us. What can I do? What can you do? What can we do together to build a culture locally that reflects the type of community that we read about in the book of Acts? We have some things in place. We're not saying we've got it perfect. We're not saying that we've got everything in place that ought to be in place. So what are some other things, perhaps, that you could do, that you could start, that you could build within this local community of believers that would help us to have the type of unity that we read about in the early church in the book of Acts. Our prayer meetings are a great thing to, to be a part of. Just as they continued in prayer, we should continue in prayer, uh, continuing in the apostles' doctrine. So coming together on these Wednesday nights where it's not, you know, a thousand miles per hour and it's not, you know, the preacher spitting from the pulpit to the back row while he's preaching, but just coming together and making sure we know what the Word of God teaches and digging into the apostles' doctrine. That's, that's an important part. Our fellowship nights are an important part, but that's not enough. If the only fellowship you have is when Fourth Sunday Fellowship rolls around, that's not enough. And so while we try as uh, leadership of a local assembly to create opportunities, some of that should fall on you, right? You should be looking for someone to spend time with. I have spoken uh, with Brother Axtell, who's heading up our uh, missions coffee shop that will be opening soon, and about how excited I am about him and his team getting that going because that's a great opportunity to connect with someone who comes and seem to enjoy the service to get them back next Sunday. Hey, would you come early and let's just grab a cup of coffee? Yeah. Maybe you can't afford to take them out to dinner. Maybe you know, they might not commit to an hour-long lunch with you. They don't know you, but a cup of coffee for 10 minutes before church? Yeah, I can do that. How many people could you take for a cup of coffee versus taking for a meal? 
a lot more people for a cup of coffee, right? And so it's just a great opportunity to connect with people and to connect with folks that you've been in church with maybe for months or years that you still haven't built a relationship with that you don't even know their name. Hey, let's grab a cup of coffee next Sunday and talk. I'd love to get to know you better. Like it's an encouragement to me to see you here worshiping. I just want to know you better. So that's my plug for Missions Coffee. <laughs> and yes, I'm the guy that makes this coffee at home 99.9% .9 of the time, but I'd be willing to buy a cup if it means I can fellowship and I can connect and I can build relationships with those who are also seeking to walk with the Lord and also seeking to build a relationship with God and want to believe truth and want to live truth and want to impact our community. It's worth a couple of dollars a week to go in there and have a cup of coffee. And the support missionaries. So, man, it's a just double blessing. One key doctrine that separates the Pentecostal apostolic faith tradition that we are a part of from Reformed and mainline Protestant traditions is the doctrine of cessationism. As the name cessationism suggests, cessationism is the teaching that the gifts of the Spirit, as listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, have ceased. So they believe that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer in operation. Many of them also believe that miracles are no longer available. This doctrine was initially formulated by John Calvin and then was reasserted by a Reformed theologian, B.B. Warfield. Warfield likely reasserted this doctrine in direct response to the modern Pentecostal movement that began in the early 20th century. The lack of spiritual gifting and the absence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in other faith traditions is not just a matter of theological doctrine. It's a lack of personal experience or a collective experience in an assembly. They haven't experienced it for themselves, and therefore that doctrine can continue. But the moment that you experience the gifts of the Spirit, the moment that you experience miracles and healings and signs, you can no longer believe the doctrine of cessationism. When Christians do not seek the gifts of the Spirit, those gifts do not appear. Paul told us to seek earnestly the best gifts. When Christians began seeking the gifts of the Spirit during the latter half of the 19th century, they reappeared. So it wasn't that they had stopped. It wasn't that God said, oh, I'm not going to allow them to add anymore. I'm not going to move anymore. People just quit asking to see it. People quit seeking after it. People quit devoting themselves and committing themselves to the practices that would put them in a position to be submissive to the Spirit so that the gifts of the Spirit could operate. But the minute they began making that a priority and seeking it again, these gifts reappeared in the church. The opposite of cessationism is continuationism, which argues that the gifts of the Spirit have continued without end since the day of Pentecost. The Pentecostal experience is the living embodiment of continuationism as we strive to continue the practice of Christianity as presented in the book of Acts. We have a video at this time. If they'll go ahead and play that, you'll turn your attention to the screen. To me, one of the surest ways for us to know that that doctrine of cessationism is not true, the idea that all the works of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit stopped back at the end of the apostolic age, which I think it's only fair to point out, we would still believe we're in the apostolic age. But one of the clearest ways for us to know that that can't be true is simply to open our eyes and look around at things that have happened around us in our world today. Anyone who's been a part of the church for any length of time can testify to seeing God do miraculous things today. 
I reflect back a few years ago, I was very blessed to preach at the Colorado camp meeting, and afterwards I stayed over on Sunday to preach for what was then Pastor Hale's church in Denver. At the close of the service, while the altar service was going on, I suddenly heard this great explosion of worship over in the center aisle. I wasn't over there praying with anyone. I was actually praying with someone on the other side of the church. But over near the middle, you heard this eruption of worship, went running over to see what was happening, and discovered a lady who came to that church that day completely blind, with her white cane making her way along. And in that service, in that altar time, God opened her eyes when I got there, she was cupping the face of her daughter, a grown daughter, in her hands the very first time she'd ever looked on the face of her daughter. That lady who walked in blind left her white cane laying on the pulpit that day and walked out completely seeing. I could only imagine what it was like when she went to the driver's license bureau a couple weeks later to get a driver's license. They asked her why she'd never had one, and she explained until two weeks before she'd been blind all her life. It would have been pretty hard to tell that lady or that church or me, or anyone who was there that day, that God no longer works the supernatural, that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer in operation because she carries in her pocketbook a driver's license that testifies that God still does the miraculous today. I thank God we are still in the apostolic age, and the works of the apostles are being done yet today. We see God regularly in the apostolic church intervene in the course of nature and work miraculous works of the Spirit. Thank God, cessationism is not accurate. So how does our church, or how can our church, intentionally construct an atmosphere where the miraculous can happen at any time, in any place? What can we as individuals coming together as one local body of believers do to help create this atmosphere of faith that allows miracles, signs, and wonders to occur? We think sometimes that we have to do some extraordinary things. Oh, man, I, if I went on like a 40-day fast, God would probably do something. But when we read about the early church, they did ordinary things consistently with all their heart, with full devotion, full commitment. And if we will do that, if we will uh, make ourselves available to God in that level, then God will do the miraculous in our midst even more than we've seen. And we've seen miracles. We've seen healings. Like I've said, we've seen God, you know, provide in a miraculous way in people's lives in our church. And so there's plenty of testimony surrounding us. There's no, so there should be no doubt in our, our minds or our hearts anymore that God can or that even God will. So how can we to get to a place where it's a more frequent occurrence, where it can happen not just here in a service, but it can happen in the grocery store. It can happen at a local restaurant when we pray for someone. How can we develop that atmosphere as a collective body, where it's not just one person with great faith, but the collective body is bringing in testimonies and praise reports, you know, one after another of the things that God is doing in our daily lives, you know, on an ordinary Tuesday or an ordinary Monday even, right? That dreaded day of the week for most people. Oh, it's Monday. Well, why not make that ordinary Monday an extraordinary Monday by giving God an opportunity to do something miraculous in somebody's life? Would you stand with me? Obviously, I did not get through all of tonight's lesson, but I think you got what you needed from this lesson. I believe... Uh, you got the real focal point is that if we as ordinary people will do ordinary things in a consistent way 
make them an ordinary part of our life, if you will, then our extraordinary God will do extraordinary things, not just in our lives, but in the people out there who don't know him yet. Yes, I want God to do extraordinary things for you, but you, you already believe. You, you've already committed your heart to God. You've already been born again of water and of spirit. You've got your name written in the Lamb's book of life. So I would much rather see God do something extraordinary for somebody that doesn't know him yet that would bring them to him, that would add a name to the book of life. So why don't we pray together tonight and ask the Lord to use us to share that which we've seen and heard. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that we are part of a body of believers who know without a doubt that you still do the miraculous. You still heal. You still provide. You still do miracles, signs, and wonders. God, would you help us to live in such a way, to do these ordinary daily disciplines of the Christian life to make them part of the ordinary practice of our life so that you can do the extraordinary, so that you can change lives, so that you can impact this community, so you can draw the many, many lost souls around us to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, so they can be born again of water and spirit, and their name can be written in the Lamb's book of life, and we can expand the population of the New Jerusalem for when we get to the other side. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. You're dismissed.